Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com. You ever think about quitting? It's the combat of life hammering the snot out of you. Well, stand by, dig in deep, and get ready to get fired up with us. Welcome to the Team Never Quit Podcast, the number one podcast that inspires you to fight on. I'm your host, David Rutt Rutherford, here with Mr. Never Quit himself, Marcus Luttrell. Our mission is to help you embrace the suck of life, to teach you the values of working your ass off. And to interview the most hard-charging people on planet Earth. We know life is hard. It's time for you to suck it up, buttercup. And let us teach you to persevere in every environment imaginable. By sharing real-world lessons learned by those who never quit. That's right. It's time, Marcus, for us to help them defeat the well, negative insurgency up, in their lives. You fire me up, Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's roll. Let's roll. Two thousand one hundred and three, Marcus. Two thousand one hundred and three. That's how long our guests spent in captivity. Five and three quarter years. Five and three quarter years. Mm. I can't even wrap my mind around like two days, dude. I know you got a handle on that, but I I can't even begin. To imagine what that must have been like. And what everything that when I went back and started doing the research on this cat, right? When we started looking up about what the Hilton was about, about Vietnam incarceration, man, that place was, I mean. Yeah, and we're not talking about five and three quarters years of, you know, incarceration in a United States prison. Where this you get three three hots a day, yeah. you get to watch Oprah. This is the Hanoi Hilton, where you're being tortured. We're going to get into the yeah before, the details of this. Let's slow down. I, I let me just welcome our listeners before you get into reading that what you're going to read about the Hilton man. If you <laughs> if you are listening, a first time listener to the Team Never Quit podcast, first off, I'm I'm one of your hosts, Dave Rut Rutherford. We're here with the wizard and Mr. Never Quit himself, Marcus Luttrell. 
And what we want to do is welcome you to our show, to really to our community, right, Marcus? Absolutely. I mean, that's what we're building here. The we're, team. We're, we're building the team, a team of resilient, gritty, never quit people that are going to support one another when the going gets tough, the tough get going. That was in stripes, wasn't it? Remember that? That was good. Is that when he goes, keep going, yeah. he runs out of the deal, no one follows him? Oh, no, it's, I thought oh, it was that, Animal House. Yeah. Animal House. That is Animal House. <laughs> yeah. I think he says it somewhere in stripes, too, but that just might be my TBI talking. All right. So what I want to say is, man, this show is going to set you up for a base of knowledge that is going to blow you away. I can't even begin to tell you. I mean, we, we, you think about in our lives how often we feel trapped. We feel trapped in uh, our professions. We feel trapped uh, in relationships. We feel trapped in our own minds through doubt and fear, uh, almost incarcerated by, by what the obstacles and the adversity that's in front of you. Well, we're bringing a guy on who has a, a whole mentality, a philosophy of living in 2,103 days, couldn't crush his spirit, man. And so if you're first-time listeners, stand by for that. If you're coming back and you're regular, thank you so much. We are so blessed with your dedication to us. We are so blessed with your loyalty and commitment to us and helping us spread the Team Never Quit podcast word because that's what we truly need, man. That's what we are all about is, is through word of mouth, you going out and finding somebody that you know that is in prison, right? that is locked down and can't figure out the right key to unlock themselves from whether it's a self-imposed imprisonment or it's it's the external world that's around them, man, send them to our show. Please let us help them because that is our mission in life right now. When, when the wizard and Marcus and I sit around and we talk about who we want to bring on this show, man, we're out there combing every demographic, every group, every, every industry, every, every walk of life to try and bring somebody that you can connect with or somebody that you know that they can connect with too. And that's what our mission is. If you want to know more about us, go ahead and check out our website at tnqpodcast.com. You can follow us on all the social media platforms out there. And I'm telling you, it's really just a powerful thing. And, and, and quite frankly, we, we got a, you know, just, I want to put this out there, Marcus, you got a big one coming up here. You guys are going back out on a Patriot tour here soon, aren't you? October. Yep. October. You're doing a show in New York, right? Philly in New York. We finally made it. Hmm. Man. Broadway. Do you? Is it really going on Broadway? Yeah. That is so cool. Well, I'm not, you know, one night, but still, they said, yeah. I, I tell you, know, you what. Jay-Z says, man, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Oh, amen. <laughs> I think it's going to be one of the best shows, the best couple shows you guys have all done. So if you're in New York on October 19th, man, go find the Patriot Tour. You won't want to miss this night of patriotism. We've got Marcus on there. We've got Taya Kyle. We've got Chad Fleming, the one-legged badass Army Ranger. I love Chad, man. And who do we have? Who else, brother? Goggins. 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 Oh, yeah, it's kind of one of those deals where 
I, the, the personal enjoyment I get and the reason I do it, man, I love seeing Goggins and Taya and Chad and all them, how their lives have just taken off and grown. I mean, Taya, Amen. it's not because of Patriot Tour, but being on the road with them and then watching them from us starting down there to how and what they are now is, is man, I love that. It's great. And it's kind of one of those deals where we never could get into New York or into Philly. And uh, we just kept. Get pounding away, you yeah, never quit. Into that wall, you never quit. Yeah, you got to prove yourself to get into those places. Amen. I, and, Amen. Uh, I, when I found out we were going to New York, boy, I'm excited. I'm pulling out all stuff. It might get weird that night, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's all coming together on that one. I love it. Now, if you're interested and you want to go see these shows, go to patriottour.com and you can buy them. Buy tickets for your whole family. I mean, this is a family event. Get out there, go at night. You are going to be overwhelmed by, by these by these people. They are so dynamic and their stories are so amazing. So please get out there and go support them. All right, Captain Charles Plum, five and three quarter years. I, I think what we need to do, dude. What we need to do is we need to have the wizard talk a little bit about explain to our audience. Just how horrific the Hanoi Hilton was. So, Wizard, Wizard, could you? Yeah, where he spent two thousand one hundred three <laughs> yeah, days. Yeah, right. His home. Yeah, uh, let's let's read this to kind of paint a picture for everybody that's listening out there. Thank you to Christopher Mays, as well as some various other accounts from places that were pulled together to to make this. What is the Hanoi Hilton? The Ho Lo Prison, nicknamed the Hanoi Hilton by American POWs during the. Vietnam War began as a French colonial prison. It was built over five, a period of 15 years from 1886 to 1901. Then in, in 1913, it was renovated to hold 600 prisoners, and that crowded to 2,000 by 1954. The prison and its poor conditions were a focal point of hatred and resentment by the, of French rule among the Vietnamese. Locals dubbed it Ho Lo, translated as Fiery Furnace or Hell's Hole. Uh, that's a nice name, isn't it? Hell's Hole. Yeah, so who, who was in the Hanoi Hilton? During the Vietnam War, the North Vietnamese repurposed the prison to hold POWs, and the North Vietnamese government used extreme methods of torture on Americans to extract information. They justified torture by claiming that the Americans were political prisoners, not prisoners of war, and therefore not beholden to the same rules. Much of this torture occurred in the infamous Blue Room. Among those housed and tortured at the prison, uh, notable names, Senator, Senator John McCain, Admiral and Medal of Honor recipient James Stockdale and Brigadier General Robinson Reisner. Reaching up to 110 degrees each day, the combined stench of human waste and sweat made it nearly impossible to breathe. The torture was constant. The Americans were thrown in tiny cells, slabs of concrete for beds, single bare light bulbs, making, it, making sleep impossible. They were in a constant state of starvation. POWs at the Hanoi Hilton regularly had their legs strapped in irons or, or stocks, the bindings were usually extremely tight to cut into the legs, causing lacerations and infections. On top of that, soldiers were faced with the grim reality that when, they had, when it came time to relieve themselves, being strapped to a bed face up for days on end, they had to do it as they lay there and marinated it as rats and roaches crawled all over them. Jesus. Yeah. In the words of congressman from Texas uh, at the time, Colonel Sam Johnson, as a POW in the Hanoi Hilton, I could recall nothing from military survival training that explained the use of a meat hook suspended from the ceiling. It would hang above you in the torture room like a sadistic tease. You couldn't drag your gaze away from it. 
During a routine torture section with the hook, the Vietnamese tied the prisoner's hands and feet, then bound his hands to his ankles, sometimes behind his neck, sometimes in front. The ropes were tightened to the point that, they, that you could not breathe. Then bowed and bent in half, the prisoner was hoisted up onto the hook to be hung by ropes. Guards would return at intervals to tighten them until all feeling was gone. The prisoner's limbs turned purple and swelled to twice their normal size. This would go on for hours, sometimes even days on end. Aside from leg irons and, and stocks, both of which were used on me for months and years on end, the meat hook was the favorite instrument of torture within the Hanoi Hilton. you imagine that? No, I, I just... I mean, you know, you what know, drives, I, what drives, and, and what, what, what's crazy to me, and, and I don't mean to jump here on you, but, man, you think about, <laughs> you think about what human beings are actually capable, the horrific nature mm-hmm. of with, peach, peep, with which people can, can incarcerate and demoralize and, and just butcher people for the mm-hmm. sake of doing it, right? And it really lets you know just, how we operate not only as in with our prisoners of war, but the moral integrity that we have. And I think that just makes me feel better as an American, man. Absolutely. You're completely right. The sadism is, is truly incredible. Um, let me keep going here. Some other forms of torture. They used ratchet based police handcuffs dubbed as the hell cuffs. These were tightened to the point that they dug into the skin Cutting off circulation, such as, the, such as the victim's hands would turn black and nerves were compressed, causing damage. Or, POWs in turn there were hardly ever fed, as the Vietnamese used starvation as a form of torture. When they were fed, prisoners were given watery soup with human feces and or rocks. Many POWs were forced into uncomfortable positions on stools, then bound in place with ropes or handcuffs and left for long periods. This could go on for days during which prisoners had to wallow in their own urine and feces. They could not sleep or rest. If they fell over, guards would put them upright again. Lieutenant Ron's stores had been made to stand, for example, on a stool for seven days straight, beaten nearly to death by a bamboo stick, continuously. Uh. A guard named Mouse liked to throw buckets of ice water on prisoners during winter nights when they were bound to the stool in irons or forced to kneel. One soldier held out on the stool torture for 33 days. Another example, while being transported to Hanoi after being shot down, Captain Jim Mulligan's captors poured gasoline over his bound arms, fusing the threads of rope into his wounds. Captain Plum, who we're going to talk to here shortly, vividly described the conditions of his captivity at the notorious Hanoi Hilton as, I had a two-gallon bucket that served as a toilet. The tin roof turned my cell into an oven. There was the taste of salt from tears, blood, and sweat that never ceased. I had boils which covered my body and caused my eyes to swell nearly shut. A rag tied around my waist was my only clothing. And I routinely faced starvation and torture at the hands of the enemy. Now, numbers as far as uh, prisoners of war, we looked into this. It's, it's, it can be a little complicated. There's some that, uh, documenting exactly how many were taken, how many were lost. There's, you know, there's missing in action as well as POW. So the numbers here are... Uh, I don't know how confident we can be about these numbers, but it gives an idea. We checked this against various sources, but um, somewhere around a thousand Americans were taken as confirmed prisoners of war. Of them, 115 died in captivity. Um, the actual number is likely higher because many of the denizens of the Hanoi Hilton and other Viet- North Vietnamese prisons died and are considered missing in action. Wow. 
I tell you what, man. I, I just, I, I think anybody that can survive through that kind of insanity and not and and be square. I can't wait to hear that. Right? Yep. How the hell did they get through that and maintain being squared away people? Because you look at the success rates of those cats post post life incarceration. There's some pretty exceptional human beings, man. Oh yeah. Yeah, there's a long list of really the accomplished other end of that. human. I mean, incredible. Stockdale, after you know, he became an admiral, Medal of Honor recipient. He was even a vice presidential ca- candidate with uh, Perot back right, in. Right. Yeah, man. Right. So, dude, I, I just, man, I cannot wait to hear what this guy has to say. What do you think, Marcus? Me either. I mean, that's that's heavy. I'm mean, just from. <clears throat> I know how bad five days suck. <laughs> that just keeps rolling in my head, you know. I mean, how bad five days suck. Wow. Five years, right? Five years. Five years. So rolling in my head times five years. I don't know if we, you know, in my opinion, I don't think it's something that unless you go through it, you can't put it into words. What words can you? No, no. We, we sit here and witty banner and chin wink back and forth all damn day and yeah. try and rationalize what in the hell he went through, man. But the mindset is is something, and it's an it's. An isolated prison, man, and you can't get there unless you've been there, period. That's for sure. Period. You know what we can say, though, is that a POW, particularly in this case, that story is so uh, the epitome of never quit. uh, I think the way that the reason why those guys don't have PTSD is uh, you hear about them guys that have been through this, the ringers, right? It's one of them deals where they were in it so long that anything other than what's going on in the now. In the now, man, is easy. you know, it's just kind of, I know what oh, yeah. stressful is, right? Yeah. And I'm not there at all. And that's got to be such a relief that you just like, everything <laughs> is jovial. <laughs> that's awesome. That's kind of way I, you know, I'm not like, man, I know where the hell I'm not. <laughs> Everything's good. That kind of deal. Well, let's, yeah. let's hear from the source, man. What do you say? Let's get Captain Plum on here Absolutely. so we can hear from... Mr. Never Quit himself, man. Captain Charlie Pump. What do you say, Jen? I can't wait. Absolutely. Marcus, what is the most important thing that we have in America? What is the most important thing that when you wake up in the day and you take that breath of air, you check out your opposable thumbs, you stand upright, and you go live the American dream, what is the component of that that just feels so good? It's that blanket we wrap around. It's that cape that we fly and do awesome stuff with. What is it, brother? Our women? <laughs> Not so much answer. for all the of flag? us. Not so much for. I had to throw that no! out there. You know, I had to go there, bro. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Not so much for all. The freedoms and protections afforded by the Constitution and Declaration of Independence. Wizard, why are you so smart? The freedom of the Constitution. The freedom. You guys set the- me up on that one. Y'all planned that out before we walked, came in the door. Negative. That was you so good. Absolutely. W- women so. was my answer as well. Don't worry. So, <laughs> what better person? Seriously. What better man to, who understands how valuable that concept is, understands the depth, understands the blessings, understands the gratitude for it, understands just the, the, the presence that it is in our lives 
than Captain Charlie Plum. And so, without further ado, man, sir, it is an honor to welcome you to the Team Never Quit podcast. Thank you for being here. Really a great privilege to be with you guys. Uh, I'm honored. Awesome. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, sir, I, you know, I, I have about 15,000 questions that are, you know, just raking at my prefrontal cortex to throw at you. But before we get into that, before we get into the meat and potatoes of this show, what we got to do is we got to warm up. We got to limber up a little bit, got to do a little stretching. You know, Marcus has so much metal in his body. So we're going to warm up with something we call the Mad Minute to, to develop oh, that. Oh, I know the Mad Minute. That's going to be my first rabbit hole. <laughs> we're gonna get along famously they won't ever let no, me go down right off the bat yeah. all right you guys, all right uh, you know you guys ask all these millennial questions and I, I can i can see that lava lamp on your desk i know you know a little bit about my uh, my story my history well well sir you know when i was doing my research in your opening video to your speech you start out with the doors I, I'm a huge Jim Morrison fan. In fact, I'm <laughs> you trying like the doors. Yeah, I, 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 you know, so I figured I'm not I, that old. <laughs> I love the door. I thought I was Jim Morrison yeah, in I'm college. A big doors fan as well. <laughs> so what I figured is we'd have this lava lamp going back for when you were just, a hippie when you me. got back, no, right? <laughs> you know what? In my day, though, they were black and white. The lava yeah. lamps. You, yeah, everything was black and white in my day. You got a colored lava lamp. What's, what's with that? Well, <laughs> improves the trip. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Thing, <laughs> things on drugs. Uh, well, you it's know, it is our on air light. It is our on air light. I love it. All right. So let's get going. Marcus, are you ready? All right. Fire away, Adam. All right. So, first car. First car was a Rambler American 220. <laughs> oh yeah, I know it. <laughs> yeah, it, it was the cheapest thing I could find. <laughs> nice. All right, Where's I got it? another vehicle question, slightly different though. I want you All to right. give us one aircraft or one aircraft that you never have but would love to fly, and one that you would have nothing to do with. <laughs> okay, an aircraft uh, oh, I best would love to fly would be a P fifty one Mustang from World War Two. Awesome. Uh, the yeah. yeah, the great airplane. Uh, an airplane which I uh, don't would not like to fly would probably be uh, the Spruce Goose. You know, <laughs> oh, Howard, Howard Hughes! Hughes. Yeah. Spruce Goose. Ah, oh, yeah. I love it. Texas boy, what's up? You know Howard Howard Hughes got that thing about sixteen off sixteen feet off of uh, off the water and set it right back down. I think he was afraid to fly it too. Right, right by Catalina, right? Yeah, it was, yeah. It was the famous yeah, yeah. historic flight, uh -huh. right? Wasn't that thing where each wing was uh, a football that field? Where was that was Catalina? Yeah, it was right, in, right off uh, Long Beach Harbor where his uh, factory was. Awesome. awesome. All right, that, these, we're, you're on a roll, sir. I dig it. I dig it. Okay. I'm, it, st I'm still scared. <laughs> if you were stranded on a desert island, I know that probably gives you chills, but if you were stranded on a desert island and you had one DVD or one CD to choose from uh, from a particular band, what band would it be and what album? The Beatles, the Rolling Stones, or Led Zeppelin? Uh, Beatles. Okay. And um, um, I don't know. Is, is that one? The picture on the album is him walking across the street. Abbey Road. Abbey Road. Abbey yeah, Road. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Awesome. I, I love this guy. <laughs> uh, favorite superhero? Uh, 
Now I know you guys have all these superheroes with their you know, their capes and uh, climbing spider webs and stuff. My superhero is MacGyver. <laughs> that is no, my favorite I, answer. I, I, you know, I think ever. a roll of duct tape and uh, some baling wire. <laughs> chewing gum. Anything. The chewing gum with the foil. Yeah. Chew- Always. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's it. That guy had a great haircut, too. Dude, yeah. he had the party in the back going, oh, yeah. and that fluffy Business jacket. in the front, oh. party in the back. Hey, they have those on the iTunes. You can watch the, all the episodes. Airwolf, I've been down on my <laughs> You've been in there, Rabbit. Been down you got caught, have, have, you? Yeah. <laughs> MacGyver freak, too. All right, wizard, oh. shoot. I got to admit, MacGyver was one of my heroes. Um, if you could give truth serum to any one person for 10 minutes, Ooh, who I would know. you give this to? <laughs> who would you give it to and why? I hate to I hate to give get political this, but I'd love to know what's in the head of Hillary Clinton. Amen. Amen. Fascinating, <laughs> wouldn't it be? From yeah, a, yeah, it would be. From yeah. a psychological perspective, fascinating. Mm-hmm. We actually but when the election was going on, we had Donald Trump Jr. on and I actually reached out to try and get Chelsea Clinton on. We had yep, some friends yep. of my family are big donors, and and we tried to get up. We uh, obviously we didn't get a response, but <laughs> we made the effort. <laughs> okay, no. if you could, if you could travel back in history and have a day with someone in history, just a full day, you and them hanging out, who would that be? Well, Jesus Christ would be my first thought. Holy you know, I'd, cow. I'd, I'd, you know, it'd be neat to get to know that guy for a day. I, I'd right? say so. Right? I'd say so. <laughs> Definitely that's the leading answer so far for that question. Yes, it is. <laughs> Hands down. I Thank are. you. Thank you. Nope. Marcus, shoot him. Could that answer just totally blowed my question down. I was going to ask, all right, the new Death Wish is coming out. <laughs> Char- Charles Bronson or Bruce Willis? <laughs> who, who's, who's, who's the best man for that job? But now we got to totally ruin that. I can't, I can't follow Jesus with, with a death wish <laughs> question. <death. laughs> you know what I mean? You to follow Jesus. Yeah, don't follow the Jesus, man. Uh, all right. A uh, uh, movie character you'd like to play out in real life? A movie character? Uh, yeah. Hmm. Boy, I had to give that some thought. Um, Tom Cruise, I guess, uh, in uh, Top Gun. Nice. That was so cool. Sir, right? That's sir, you, correct? Sir, you did that. That yeah. was you. Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah, yeah. he was playing you, and I'm a. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, yeah, I totally want to. Yeah, I tell you what. I, when we get Tom on the show, I'm gonna let him know that. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, as a man who would know, when Tom rides uh, rides the bike down the flight line, any possibility that would have ever happened? No. <laughs> yeah. oh, that's what we figured. Yeah, that's, a, that's been a burning yeah, question. We had to ask. We, we didn't have any instructors like Kelly McGillis either, I'll tell you that. Yeah, right? Right? Okay, question. Yeah. If you could time travel, would you rather go into the future or go back in history? I'd go back in history. Why? Uh, the f- future is too scary. I, I don't think I really want to know what's going to mm, happen. I like that. <laughs> All right, I got one. If you could be president for one day, what would you try and do in that day? And you had bit broad sweeping authority too. So uh, term limits would be my first priority. Oh God, get those suckers you. out of there! God bless you for saying <laughs> that, sir. Everybody talks about that. How come that's not a thing yet? Well, because you're not going to vote yourself who- out of a job, yeah. right? Not supposed to well, be a unless job unless you have integrity. Supposed to be service. <laughs> It's not the deed, it's the glory, right? 
wait a minute. Moving I got on. that backward. <laughs> all right. All right. Great all answer. Right. Sir. But moving on. Outstanding. Well, that's the end of our Mad Minute. We really appreciate it. Your answers were incredible and awesome. But now we got to get into really the 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 meat of of what this show is about. And sir, we 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 did this because we felt we had to continue our mission of servitude in life. And the best thing that we believe that we could share with people out there is this never quit mindset that we've been so blessed to receive from our time in the teams, from our time and our amazing experiences in life and our faith. So people come here to find those stories, to really give them something that will stoke the fire in their gut and get them in the game, so to speak, to give them the tools to endure the combat of life and to really move forward. So please, sir, without further ado, would you please share your greatest never quit story or stories? Let me tell you my first never quit uh, story. I, I learned never quit from my grandmother. Uh, Lenora Plum was her name. She buried two husbands and raised nine children total oh my. on 120 yeah. acres in the Ozarks. Um, I don't know how they measure those 120 acres oh. because it was all like 45 degree hills. And so <laughs> I don't know if that, if that was from above <laughs> or from the side. But she had uh, 120 uh, acres of rock. Uh, I was living in Kansas, Liberty Town of 325 souls and a couple of Presbyterians. You guys didn't get that joke? No, no, we got it. We got got (laughs) So, uh, but I got to spend the, the, uh, I I got to spend the summers with my grandmother down in the Ozarks, okay? And that's where I became a Republican, down there in the Ozarks. She was a big, big lady. I mean, huge lady. In fact, my, my, I was six years old. My, my cousins were a little smaller than I was, and she'd hug them, and, and, and they would just, like, disappear in her wrinkles. She was, <laughs> Those are the best grandmothers. <laughs> so, um, but my job on, on her farm was to gather uh, firewood. Now, this was before electricity or plumbing uh, or air conditioning or anything else. You know, she had, I mean, this is really basic, basic dirt dirt farming in the Ozarks. Every morning, my grandmother would make these, um, uh, these biscuits, you know, sourdough biscuits every day. And I, my job was to, to collect the firewood to stoke this stove because there was no, you know, no gas or electricity. It was a, it was a wood stove. And, and I had to do this early in the morning. It's like 5 a.m. <clears throat> in the morning. Well, uh, the, the beds were, uh, fe- fe- feather beds, you know, uh, plucked from the down of the, of the, the geese, you know, that wow. she raised. And so, man, it was really nice and warm. And I slept in one morning and, and she couldn't, uh, cook her, 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 uh, biscuits because I didn't bring in the wood. And I see this big lady, you know, in the door <laughs> and she comes in and, and that's, that, that, that's how I became a Republican because she took me and she put me over her knee with a peach switch and bared my little bottom. And she hammered on me and she said, you little Democrat, you. <laughs> now, now I didn't know what a Democrat was, but I sure knew I didn't want to be one. <laughs> well, that's one way to do it. And yeah, and you know, from that day forward, I, I never quit. I, ne- I never quit bringing in a wood. Oh, my God. I mean, that's that's awesome, man. And getting oh, yeah. a switch, getting a beat down, put them in the right mind frame. 
Yeah. So as is that your only one? You got another one for us? No, no. I well, I, I teach my you know I, I teach my kids never quit as well. My uh, my first son Joe was uh, training wheels on his bike, and I would I was I was in a marathon at the time, and and so I would jog along with his training wheels. Finally, because and you know when he'd fall over, you know my my mantra was plums never quit, plums <laughs> never quit. I love and it. And anytime he you know he'd. He'd, he'd fall down and, and skin his uh, elbows. Plums never quit. So <clears throat> I'm jogging along, and we finally took his training wheels off, and he could ride on his own. And I'm still jogging, hanging on in there. Well, the, this uh, jogging path went right along a cliff, um, and it was kind of dangerous, you know. So I had to be with him as as he was riding along. And so <clears throat> he's about to turn the corner, but by now he can bike faster than I can run. <laughs> and I know he's about to turn the corner oh, towards this cliff. Yeah. And I, Joe, Joe, slow down. And he turns around. He's like four years old. Dad, dad, plums never quit. <laughs> <laughs> Unforeseen. When your lessons go deeper than you could imagine. <laughs> yeah, and they can keep coming back at you too, you know? <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I love it's it. Amazing. I love it. Marcus, you, I, you talk about that all the time with your old man growing uh, up. What? Same kind of grandmother, grandmothers. They were the ones who led the charge on everything and raised raised the men. And then oh, yeah. whenever we got out of line, the grandfathers and the father would come in, and pound you back into the into shape, right? <laughs> yeah, they would. Absolutely, man. I love it. I love it. So, all right, as you growing up and you've got the never quit mentality, and obviously faith is a huge component. Where did the concept of servitude to your country come into play, sir? I'd love to tell you guys, you know, that I always wanted to serve my country and be in the military and be a Marine or something like that. But the reason I joined the military is because I needed an education. And mm -hmm. so at age 17, uh, graduated from high school, um, I, you know, I sent, I sent my resume to everybody uh, trying to get scholarships. My parents couldn't afford to send me to school. And so I had to have a scholarship and work my way. And, and, and I, I was, you know, I... I'd been throwing newspapers and gr mowing grass and shoveling uh, mm -hmm. barn <laughs> stalls, you know, all, all my early life. But I, so I knew how to work. But uh, but I wanted uh, to get an education. Well, I got an appointment to Annapolis and uh, uh, surprised everybody. I had no idea what they did at Annapolis. I really didn't. <laughs> I, I I'd never planned on this. I you know I didn't know what it was. And so I got on that Greyhound bus in Kansas City, Kansas, and two days later, I was uh, I was at Bancroft Hall, and that's the way it all began. Wow! No, oh. no, you had no. I mean, obviously, from your generation, and and there were certainly men around you that had been in service in World War II. There were people around you, so there was a, a heightened sense of patriotism. Did you understand? the magnitude of, of war and warfare and the implications of it at all? Not really. Yeah, most of my uh, uncles and two of my aunts, you, you know, these nine kids that my grandmother had were all in World War II. They were all military. And so I, I knew of them, but I uh, I was really too young to understand. I was born in 1942, and so the war was over when I was three years old. So uh, I, mm. I didn't really know them while they were in service, but just heard the stories when they came back. So, uh, but but seriously, um, 
I, you know, I was a boy scout and uh, I was patriotic and, you know, wave the flag and play in the band and, and all this stuff. But as far as, uh, you know, thinking of myself as a warfighter, uh, I, I, that didn't come along until I, until I joined the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. One of the things, one of the things we talk quite a bit about as are the reference points we're able to take with us further down the road. So what we experience going through hell week, we're able to apply in difficult situations in combat. And Marcus tells at length about it when he talks about his experiences. And when you're a plebe going through in that freshman year, I'm, I'm certain. Did you have any concept that those, those lessons you were learning as as a person at in Annapolis that they would play any massive role like they did later on. I mean, were they able to instill that in you? I could see that you know the, the commonality. I could see the parallels, uh, but I still didn't see myself uh, as a prisoner of war. You know, I, I mean, I, I really, uh, I you know, I guess I always thought that I'd be on the high road of all this and. You know, plebe year was tough. Certainly wasn't as tough as buds, but uh, but you know they were. It was harassing, and and uh, there was a you know a lot of physical stuff back in those days that we endured. Uh, that's outlawed today. But um, hmm. and so, so I so I grew up you know learning the lessons, and as as you guys know, the the, the more the more discipline you see in the military, the more devoted you get to the mission. Right. And so, and so I, I, I sort of, as I went through the four years that the Naval Academy, and I think especially the plebe year, um, I gained, you know, first of all, a lot of respect for the service and a lot of dedication to, uh, being a warrior. Wow. But I still had no idea. You know, I still had no idea what it was going to be like. That I had, that's a real thing. What he's talking about. Yeah. I'll ask platoon, yeah. a, a buddy of mine. One of, he was one of our uh, officers. He, I asked him, we were out there one day, and I was like, man, how'd you wind up in the Naval Academy? He's like, I had no idea, man. I just wanted to play soccer. <laughs> <laughs> he's, I was like, he was like, you didn't want to be a SEAL? He's like, no, I didn't figure that out until I got there. All I want to do is play soccer. <laughs> I didn't even know. And, oh, this guy's yeah. great, man. And, uh, but as he's telling me this, I'm like, well, here we are and in the best place on the planet ramadi iraq <laughs> ramadi you know, iraq yeah. <laughs> soccer got you <laughs> here's your wish that's come why true. we don't play they soccer that game here <laughs> they play soccer in the streets here yeah, if you would have played football man you know you probably wouldn't be here you'd be in the sh- you know in the league probably. Uh, clint i <laughs> got clint there too uh one of the things that we love to discuss here especially for our listeners because you know a lot of society right now is is pushing towards um uh, almost in isolation, right? Where we come so closed off with this social media, right? Through our connectivity, we're gaining more distance from each other emotionally, cognitively, behaviorally. But it's in these training programs that you really develop core friendships. And then you have to lean on those core friendships to improve yourself dramatically. Can you describe some of that in your experience at the Naval Academy and what you started to understand about that sense of rank and structure and 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 the way you commit to one another? Absolutely. And and you're you're right. It you know that kind of training sure paid off in the prison camps. Um and 
it, it was kind of amazing how guys sort of took leadership positions in the camp that you saw that they, they had taken back at the Naval Academy. There were, I had five classmates as prisoners of war wow. and, uh, we were class of 64 class of 62 had five people as well. And, and, and two at the Naval Academy, two classes ahead were the ones that that ran us the hardest. Okay, so we learned to hate these guys <laughs> because <laughs> it, you know there's an awful lot of harassment. Um, in fact, one time in the prison camp itself, I'm out and I uh, have a chance to grab hold of a wall and and reach over the top of this wall, uh, pull myself up to see the, the guys on the other side. A guy on the other side absolutely was the devil. I mean, he was red. He had he had horns. He had uh, <laughs> flames coming out of his nose. And I, I, I fell off the wall. You know, I, I fell backward off this wall. It scared me to see this devil right there. And I went back, you know, to my to my prison cell. And and uh, who what was this? It was one of the guys from the class of '62 who had run the living bejesus out of me as a plebe, and I remembered him as the devil. And he appeared in the prison camp as the devil. <laughs> wow! Talk yeah. about your wow. mind being able to. Yeah, exactly. Oh Incredible. my gosh, that's yeah, amazing. Of course. From the you know then of course in, in a different light in a different role there he became a great leader and uh, and brought us all together. <laughs> Another guy had been my flight instructor at the Naval Academy, and um, he had uh, he had, 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 had treated me pretty bad too as a, as, a, as a flight instructor in primary flight, and um, so, and one of my first times in communicating with anybody else in the prison camp because we were all kept in solitary confinement I've seen this window and I know that there's a, a prisoner in, in the other side and um, he and I hear this guy say who are you I said I'm Charlie Plum I said who are you he said I'm Paul Galante your old flight instructor and I said <laughs> well why the hell didn't you wash me out <laughs> <laughs> Oh he, my God, that's yeah, awesome! Yeah. Yeah, I wish you would have graded a little harder, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, did my, you, one of my did you sir, Mark? Do you have any guys that were instructors in any of your platoons? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Man. I'll never forget this as long as I live, man. I, we had one instructor, Getka, and I love you, brother. But you did. I mean, I remember. You remember Getka, right? Oh, so, he was the devil himself. Uh, oh, okay, oh, yeah. so this Just was like oh, I was back from eighteen Delta. I. I I think I was at the command, but I was back in San Diego out playing golf by myself. I just kind of wandered onto the course. It was <laughs> chipping into the deal. And I hear, Latrell, are you going to get the f out of my way? And I, I froze. And I, I mean, I kind of almost urinated on my, you know, you know, you're, you know, you're getting ready to go to surf. Anytime he talks to you, man, everything just goes instinctual. Yeah. I mean, and that's what, when you were talking about peeking over the wall and seeing the devil, I remember out when, uh, when it, you know, when you're kind of by yourself, you draw back to your instincts, right? So the whatever emotion you had or developed for whatever it is in front of you, like an animal, right? So it was the devil, and then you had to relearn to. I remember that, and I, I I've gotten to know Mike real, you know, yeah, better. But I'll never forget that. I don't know if I ever told him that either, man. I just heard his voice behind me. I was like, ooh, I, <laughs> I got I, cold. You know? I, I love was like, that. Here we go, baby. because you know, <laughs> he's have... a great instructor, man. He's oh, the reason I made it through training, but. Yep. Oh man, I'll never get another that. another one of my my instructors I ran into in a prison camp was John McCain. He was my flight instructor in Meridian, right. Mississippi. Uh, he taught me to fly jets. 
Wow. And uh, he, he was a tough instructor, that guy. Uh, you know, the instructor sitting in the back seat of these jets and I was in the front seat. He, he, he couldn't reach my head, but he had a, a knee pad, you know, a metal knee pad. And he would bang on my helmet with his knee pad. <laughs> <laughs> How irritating would that be? Yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah. What are the and he, he was shot down uh, five months after I was, and so I was the first guy to, to see him in the prison camp. Did you but get him was, back? Did you hit him on the head at all yeah, when he came back? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I never paid him back for that. <laughs> awesome. Well, let if, if you don't mind, because you are creating the framework for the next kind of stage of, of where I'd like to talk to about this is, is you know, we, we have these connections to the people who pay such important roles in our development in life, right? Whether they're our instructors or we're going through class with them. And then all of a sudden when we're in extreme environments, we need to lean on them. We need to put our faith in them, so to speak. And so, you know, could you kind of frame out as you guys moved into the position where you realized it was going to be a long haul, how those relationships were built? And, and was it difficult, you know, and, and just describe how you guys connected on a, a collective and then on the inner, on the personal level. Absolutely. And, uh, it, it was critical. First of all, let me tell you a statistic you may not know, um, of all the Vietnam veterans, 30.6% have PTSD of the prisoners of war. 4% of us have PTSD. Pretty amazing statistic. It's and, unbelievable. Uh, we, hmm. Yeah, we've we've come home. Uh, 591 of us came home. We've produced 17 generals and seven admirals. Most of us retired as senior grade military officers. We've got doctors and lawyers and preachers and teachers and two ambassadors from our number, two United States senators, a bunch of congressmen, vice presidential candidate, a presidential candidate. And so they're telling us we're doing better, healthy mentally and physically than the guys who didn't get shot down. Wow. They compare us every, every year. I have a physical and mental exam and uh, they compare us with a control group of fighter pilots because that's most of the POWs were fighter pilots. It was an air war. We were being shot down. So this prison camp was all fighter pilots. Then what the psychiatrists and psychologists believe, and I believe too, it was exactly what you're talking about. It was the connections that we had. It was the leadership that we had. To a man, uh, everybody I've talked to anyway, uh, we felt guilty uh, wow. because we'd given up. You know, you, you guys have had those feelings. You Absolutely. know, the, 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 when when you don't do your best, when you didn't try as hard as you wanted, when you you know we you didn't make it over the bar. First of all, you feel guilty that you let your buddies down, you know, my squadron mates, and 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 then to have given up. And we all, of course, because we were prisoners of war, had given up, and we felt uh, just very demoralized and, and felt that we were victimized by these little people that, that <laughs> caught us. And and, uh-huh. and 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 it was uh, it was pretty grim. And uh, one of the one of the first things I remember was uh, at, in the prison camps was a a kid couldn't have been thirteen or fourteen year old, and he was a guard, and he had a rifle which was taller than he was, <laughs> and he brought his girlfriend in to show her how tough he was that he could beat up an American. Uh, uh, of course, I was the American. You got and it. Was course, your day? <laughs> yeah, it was my day. Yeah. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> right, folks. Well, uh, and so 
And so, you know, we, we were very depressed. Some, and so, some of the guys will tell you that they even considered suicide rather than have to go back and face the country that they had besmirched. You know, we just felt so low uh, about that. Okay. Some of my first communication said, hey, um, here's the good news. We have an organization here, a team like none you've ever played on. We have leadership here. Unbelievable. Our leaders can't see us. They can't fire us. They can't restrict our liberty. <laughs> you know, right. they, can't, <laughs> they, they, they can't promote us. They can't give us a bonus. Uh, they can't hire or fire, but oh, by the way, this is the, the finest leaders you will ever see. Well, Jim Stockdale at the time was, wow. was, uh, was the SRO, the senior residing officer. And he put out the word, Hey, we are not victims. We are warriors. We are combatants. We will fight to our last breath to defeat this enemy. So put on your big boy pants Get out of your pity party and let's get to work. And he gave us a mission, uh, a, a purpose, uh, you know, a raison d'etre. And, and it really made sense. It didn't make sense at first. You know, <laughs> here I am. I'm a lieutenant JG, okay? <laughs> I'm wow. thinking the brass down in the end cell has, has, come, has come up with all these rules for me to follow. You know? <laughs> I mean, that's all I need. <laughs> Great. Is there a watch bill? I got yeah. them up. Here we go. Yep. And, uh, and yet what I saw come together was in fact, the finest team I've ever played on because, you know, we were all responsible for the life of every other one and they were responsible for our lives. And we didn't take that lightly. That's pretty serious stuff. And, uh, and, and, you know, there are a number of guys there that I would say saved my life and they claim that I saved theirs. Uh, uh, and, and so it was just that tight a group and it was because of that that we not just survived that experience, but we thrived through the experience and, and became, you know, came back better off than had we not even been there. Wow. I, one of the hmm. interests, when you talk about this, I'm just trying to imagine, because, right, we live in a life of highs and lows. And, and, you know, I've watched a couple of your speeches and, you, you know, you talk about the whole concept of having someone pack your parachute every day. And, and I, I really... That really resonated with me, sir, even though I hate jumping, but that really <laughs> resonated with me because, you know, that's what we need. We need because nobody's perfect. Nobody can maintain a full reservoir of willpower day in and day out. We all break, right? I mean, I was good friends with a CIA interrogator for a while and, and, you know, I, I remember the first time I was like, dude, you could never break me. I'm a Navy SEAL. And he was just like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and he says, everybody <laughs> breaks, Dave, everybody. Yeah. And the concept in that breaking point is really the beautiful aspect of relationships and the love that you can have for another person where you guys, even though you, you know, Admiral Stockdale set this rigid bar of that, you are still in the war. Did it require a heightened sense of emotional connectivity, a greater emotional intelligence or was it more of, hey, pull your big pant, you pull your panties up, sweetie? Well, all, all of the above. As a matter of fact, it did certainly require a heightened sense of, of, uh, of who we were and what we were there to do. Uh, but redefining the mission, you know, 
it tended to be the thing that that kept us on that track. And when I, you know, when I think of, of, of all your never quit philosophies, you know, I think, well, sometimes when you face a big problem in life, not necessarily a military, but, you know, a civilian problem or a commercial problem or something at work, if you can redefine the mission, you know, uh, find a way to work around it rather than work through it, uh, you can keep on going, maybe just a step at a time, but you can keep Keep on keeping on. But it, it did require that. It required a lot of communication. And the only way we could communicate was tapping on a wall, you know, in, in, a, in a silly code that took, it took hours to get across an idea. Um, and, so, hmm. and so it was um, it, it was a heightened sense, you know, of, of, uh, of where we were and, uh, and what we had to do and the mission itself. Absolutely. You- trained by the same body you actually i mean they just took your planes away from you you just became a ground platoon and i, I talked to people <laughs> yeah. and they're talking about man i don't know if i'd have the patience to sit there and tap on that wall that long i was like well patience go out when you got shot down as a matter of fact patience go out when you join the military this is discipline we're talking about here and it's not like i have anything else to do right you know what i'm talking about I, I, this is i can't watch i don't have a tv in the background you know catching my attention and it's all on whatever's going and then you got the boys watching your back if, if i'm correct all that comes into play because we trained for one reason and then that's the new mission it's like all right i was chosen to represent the united states of america right here and i gotta do whatever i can till the boys come get me and that in the back of my head sir i was always it, you know, i like to tell them like hey man you my boys didn't rescue me they came and got me you had something that belonged to them i mean i have this voice in my head that i think the military oh, as a collective would sound like right, right. Like, oh yeah you got one of ours we coming <laughs> when that storm hit and they were like oh, it's thunder and lightning i was like no nah, that's them that's my boys coming down right and it's it's one of ours you you become so tight-knit especially when you get into those situations that you can't get out of all that training just comes down into focus and uh man the level of uh love is is i, I don't know that's probably not the right word for it because no, that's a good word for it. No, it is love. You know, the, the pack uh, mentality. It's, it's just unconditional uh, love you got for your brother, and that's why you're there. But but your point about uh, the focus when you have nothing else to think about, and it, and it really worked because especially when you're in solitary confinement and it's dark, and a lot of a lot of prison camps. I was in in and out of six different camps, and some of them. Uh, had no lights at all, and they were in valleys uh, with mountains on both sides. So you had very little light. Some some of them you couldn't you 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 couldn't distinguish uh, green from red uh, in these camps. Well, hmm. when you have nothing else to do, you know the you know uh, in our average life in in a day we have hundreds of thousands of inputs, smells and sights and sounds and and all the stuff that we're we're experiencing in a prison camp. You know they gave us nothing to do. We had nothing to read. We had no radios, TVs, telephones, nothing to do. And when your mind is in that state, you become very creative. And you can go back through your mind and 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 recover all kinds of stuff you never thought was in there. That's cool. Uh, and, and, and even today, I kind of miss that solitude. I, I'm a mountain biker, and I, I bike to the top of the hills around here, uh, and, and, and I, I do it alone. I love it alone just because I have that quiet peace within my mind. And, and I, I think everybody should do that, you know, with prayer or, or, or with uh, yoga or whatever, uh, just to give yourself a little bit of solitude. Some great advice. You know, most of us were mm-hmm. 
we were all college graduates. Uh, we had uh, masters and PhDs and guys that knew a whole lot about a lot of things. And so we taught languages, you know, French, Spanish, uh, German, Russian. Um, we taught each other, uh, um, you know, biology and uh, I, I taught a course in sailing. <laughs> I'm, a, nice. I'm a sailor. Yeah, it was really fun because, uh, you know, how, how do you teach a course in sailing in uh, a prison camp? But, but I'd take a, a piece of brick, um, on, um, on a concrete floor and draw out, you know, lines and winds and sets of sails and all this stuff. And about, uh, about two weeks after I came home, one of my buddies called me up and he had rented a sailboat. This is an Air Force guy that knew nothing about the water. I'm not even sure he could swim. But uh, he, he, he got in a sailboat and then just took it right off the dock. He can damn sure sail, though. <laughs> What's up? I got life jackets awesome. for that. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Uh, and um, it, it, one of the guys had learned a lot of poetry when he was, uh, yes. when he was young. And, yeah, I, and I love poetry. And so he would pass a line at a time through the prison wall. Um, and so I know several thousand lines of poetry. We would, we would, uh, we would we, uh, memorize this, the poetry as he sent it through. One of the poems that he sent through was one called The Highwayman. And it's about this, uh, you, know the, the, you know the story, uh, their route, the, the uh, let's see, wind was a torrent of darkness among the gusty trees. The moon was a ghostly galleon set up on uh, cloudy seas. The road was a ribbon of moonlight, looping the purple moor, and the highwayman came riding, riding, riding. The highwayman came riding up to the old inn door. So here's the Robin Hood, That's steals beautiful. from the rich, gives uh. to the poor, okay? Uh, and, uh, and, and it was really interesting because it was like watching the old serial movies because every, every day you get another line of the story. Well, the highwayman falls in love with the landlord's daughter, okay? Best, the landlord's daughter. The landlord's black-haired daughter. Okay? And so he falls in love with her. And so he, he promises her that he's going to go out and, uh, and, and get the gold and be back tomorrow morning. Okay, and so here come the redcoats. The redcoats set a trap for the highwayman by putting Bess in her window with a gun underneath her chin, and they're going to threaten to kill her unless the highwayman surrenders. All right. Okay. And, and now remember, this is a line at a time, a day at a time. We're learning this story. Oh my so God. They've got her set up, and it's a midnight, and here comes, uh, and here comes uh, the highwayman, you know, clop, 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 back into the courtyard. But Bess, all right, the landlord's daughter, has, has uh, squirreled away from the ropes that were tying her down and got her finger on the trigger of the gun. So she's going to kill herself and warn him with her death, all right? Now, so we're passing this along, line at a time, line at a time. And, and I'm getting it from one side, passing on to Jerry Coffey on the other side. And so here we were. Here he comes. And, and you know, do they hear him? Clop, 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 clop in the distance. The horse's uh, hooves ring clear. Da -da 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 -da. And that night, the Vietnamese come in. They move Jerry Coffey out of his cell oh, in the middle of the no. night. Now, we went to GQ whenever that happened because we didn't know if they lined him up and shot him in a ditch or what. Okay. So the next morning, first light, we get on our communication system. You know, we're tapping on walls and tugging on wires and wheezing and sneezing all the ways we use to communicate. 
where's Jerry? Where's Jerry? We finally got it. We found him in the far corner of the camp. They just moved him to another cell. Jerry, Jerry, are you okay? Jerry sends back, yes, but what happened to Bess? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. We we sent back, KIA, Jerry. KIA. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there is something so profound about looking at life in the beauty of what the arts can give us about what education about what things to stretch our imaginations of what's possible in our lives as you guys went through this roller coaster of of um you know you're all right you're going to be released you're not going to be released you're going to be released we're not going to be released did that did that place for all of you did it did it ever dissipate or did you always have true faith that you were going to get out? It was never a day I thought I was going to die there. Now, I, I was one of the optimists because I thought, you know, I, I set, I, I'd always set these, um, these goals. Okay. Home by Christmas, home by Christmas. When we weren't home by Christmas, it would be, you know, home by Groundhog's Day, then home by Easter and home by the 4th of July. And, and uh, so there was all, home by Thanksgiving. And so there was always a, a short-term uh, period of time that I felt that I was going to be released, um, and and it, you know to me that was that was helpful, that was positive, but um, but nobody nobody I knew in that prison camp ever thought we were going to die there. We knew we were going to go home. We just didn't know when, you know, how long it was going to take. How could you know? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. How could you know that? I'm trying to. As you're telling this, I'm trying to imagine myself in the same position. And I'm wondering, how could you be so certain of that? At like year four, too, right? Right, right, yeah. Yeah, well, in a way, it was sort of a survival mode. It was because I, I, my thought was, hey, I mean, if I think, if I think I'm going to die, I'm probably going to die. If I think I'm going to live, at least I got a chance I'm going to live. And, uh, and, and, I, and I felt from the very beginning, hey, uh, I'm not going to kill myself here. You know, I, 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 that's what the enemy wants me to do. Uh, if I die here, they're going to have to exert some of their energy to make this happen. They're going to have to pull me out of here feet first. I love it. So this uh, was a concern. I mean, this was a concerted mental effort to affect your state of mind is, is what yes. you're saying. Yeah. You're fully. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. And, and you know, I mean, I, 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 I realized this, this, my state of mind and, um, you know, I had a pretty, I had a pretty good control over it. Um, I'd so, say so. <laughs> stay, you know, to stay positive, uh, was, was not difficult for me to do because I knew I had to do that just to survive. Would wow. You, would you have prior to this called yourself an introspective person or was that something yeah, you developed so. as you were, had so much time to think basically? Uh, I, I, I was an introspective kid. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I, I thought a lot about thinking. <laughs> yeah. I, thought a lot, I love it. I love uh, it. It's hard for people to, to understand the, the, that, why would I kill myself? Cause you hadn't been in it. And all the training yeah. we've, that we've gone through, man, I never had that feeling I had when I knew that I was there, you know what I'm yeah. talking about? Yeah. And in the beginning is, is the chaos. And it's funny. Yours was Christmas. I wasn't out there long enough. My, and I don't know how we figured this time. It was 10 o'clock at night, right? There was a helo supposed to come in at 10 o'clock at night. And after they had snatched me back, the villagers had snatched me back from the, uh, 
the Taliban, they'd stuck me in this hole, right? And I was in there kind of head first. My, I think my feet were hanging out a little bit, so I had to pull my knees in. You know, my back was broke, so I was kind of having some problems with it. Well, 10 o'clock is when that healer was supposed to come. And when 10 o'clock was getting close, I, I, I was like, hey, hey, hey. You know, they put a guard on me the <laughs> second day, which was great. And then I was like, man, that's, that's you know, just to see somebody. That, you kind of, yeah, that gets yeah. to you as well. I mean, even good, bad, or indifferent is kind of like, man, I, all right, I know he's there. And then I remember pointing at my watch, and it was 9.42 or something like that. And this helo flew over the top of our head. It wasn't there for, it was looking for me, but he didn't, uh, they didn't know that, that I was right there. And I was like, ah, oh, man, you, we got to be on time. And, was, and then t- the next day, I waited till 10 o'clock and, and one didn't show up. And then next day, and then I was like, all right, no more 10 o'clocks. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can't take I was like getting stood up on a date day after day. <laughs> totally. You know, uh, speaking of, I may live through this, during the first torture session that I was in, uh, one of the happiest moments while I was being tortured was when I figured out that they weren't going to kill me, that they got me pretty close to death, and then I could see them uh, ease ease up the ropes. And uh, it was, you know, I, I don't know if I smiled or not, but I sure felt happy when I figured out that, yeah, they know the, there's a limit here, and, and they don't want to, to, uh, to kill me. And uh, from, you know, from that point on, uh, I figured that that they're not going to intentionally kill me. Uh, probably. Wow, that so. must have been so freeing for it was for you to uh, now emotionally and cognitively move into spaces where you can have mission focus, you can set little yeah. goals, you can actually uh, construct a framework of existence under extreme c- captivity. Yeah, that that's very true, and it, it really did. It gave you the freedom to uh, to put that framework together wow uh, and, and and you know and not not fear death uh from that you know from from that point of view anyway so that's amazing awesome melanie before i we came on first she wanted me to tell you specifically sir that if if she ever meets you in person she's going to throw her arms around you and give a giant hug to you because she that's the way she is right all right all right but she gave me this great question to ask you because i i know how important faith was there for everybody and and faith is a, a huge deal in our lives too um what when you were in that solitude in your mind was there a particular piece of scripture scripture that you would reference or you know what did what was how important was that and what did, what did you rely on where'd you lean on well it was vital to me and i think any you know anybody when everything else is gone when all the material things of life that you always uh you know use to identify yourself all that stuff is gone you know the airplane the uniforms all that stuff you you look for the things that are uh, ethereal and, and, and spiritual. And uh, I, I served for two years there as chaplain. Um, so cool. That's so cool. At the Naval Academy, we had what we call the Officers Christian Union. <clears throat> and um, and so I, I it, it was preparing uh, officers to be uh, um, lay leaders aboard ships where chaplains weren't available. And, uh, and so, so I, you know, I took that course and got involved. So I knew a little, little bit about it, but I certainly didn't feel ordained, <laughs> but, <laughs> but when I got into the prison camp, 
Uh, and so I, you know, I, I led a church service. Of course, we had to have it secret. You know, we'd post a, a, one of our guys at the door to make sure that no guard was going to catch us in prayer because, you know, they'd beat us up if they, they thought we were praying or, or singing or anything else. But uh, scripture, uh, probably, probably the, the most important scripture to me was Romans 8, 28. Uh, All things work together uh, for those that love the Lord. And, and, you know, I'm th- I, I picked that word for word. I'm thinking, wait a minute. All things work together for good, even in a prison camp, and all I have to do is love the Lord? Yeah, and, and so I, I thought, I'm, I'm going to see if this really works. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to test this one out. Because <laughs> what a great experimental place than a prison exactly. camp. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm a test tube here. Oh, time. <laughs> I'm a Petri dish. <laughs> and, uh, and, and uh, you, know, I, you know, obviously it worked. Uh, and, 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 and it's so easy. You know, I mean, it's simple. I mean, most of, most of faith... We try to overcomplicate, you know, we, we try to figure out reasons why this isn't going to work instead of just trusting that, that it is going to work and it works. Mm-hmm. So, that, that's but yeah, you know, tell, tell Melanie that I, I appreciate that question. And, um, and it really is true that, uh, uh, that faith was a, was a very, very strong part, uh, part of, a part of the, of the plan. Okay. That Stockdale came up with and, uh, part of the organization was, levels of resistance. And so we had various levels of resistance. Well, in my, in my prison cell, we had quite a few guys in this little prison cell. We decided to go on a, a hunger strike to get a Bible. And, um, and, and we did, and we passed back the hmm. pumpkin soup and passed back the rice and said, we're not going to eat and get, you know, bring us a Bible. Um, the interesting part was I had three guys in there that considered themselves to be atheists. Okay. And they didn't believe. And, and, and you know, I mean, they were part they were part of the team. They were going to go along with us. Wow. Uh, but, oh, oh, by the way, uh, they, you know, they didn't, they didn't care. Um, and, and one of them was second in command. All right. Well, so the first thing when we announced to the enemy, we're going to go on a hunger strike, they cut off our water. And as you guys well know, you can, <laughs> you can live a long time without fish heads and rice, but water, uh, about two days and you start to go crazy. Thirsty. Yeah. God dang. <laughs> I just, the second thing they did was uh, they pulled out our senior guy, who was a fundamentalist Christian, you know, and was in charge of all this. Of course, now I'm I'm the chaplain, so I'm I'm involved as well. But uh, but I'm not seeing. I'm a JG, and this guy was a commander. Uh, so they pulled him out of there. And so here's the atheist. All right, he's got to make this decision as to hey, what's and, and I'm watching this, and I'm happy I'm a JG. <laughs> but right. I, I'm watching. I'm watching what's going to happen. And uh, the atheist said. Continue the strike. Continue. So we, uh, so we, we still, uh, we continued our hunger strike, and uh, and we got third, pretty thirsty about the second day. And then I had, I, I, I'd hit a nail. I'd found a nail, and I hid this little nail, and I started burrowing uh, into the hole, a hole into the cell wall, and uh, made a hole through that prison cell to the guys in the cell next door. And they weren't on a hunger strike, and so they pat and I put a tar paper tube in this in this hole, and talk about MacGyver, right? That's and, it. Uh, yeah, and so they poured half their ration of water into the tube, and we caught that water on the other side, and we we're going to survive. Okay. Oh my so gosh. So they eventually came back in with a Bible. Okay. And it was a 
tattered, torn, dog-eared old copy of the King James Version of the Bible. And uh, we had it for one day. We didn't know it at the time, but we had it for one day. And, of course, I was the chaplain, and I was in charge of the Bible. And uh, everybody wanted to come up and, and just put their hand on the Bible, just touch the Bible. And my three wow. atheist buddies were at the front of the line. <laughs> <laughs> there are there wow. are no atheists in Fox. Souls are prison camps. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Did, so, uh, yes, very important. Did, did Just on a side note, and then we'll switch directions a little bit, but did, did those those guys who who didn't have faith directly in Christ or the Lord did they have a, a level of faith in each other though that was reverent oh, absolutely absolutely and I think you know in reality they had a deep faith in something almighty they just didn't know how you know they, they, they didn't know how to verbalize it they, they didn't know how to define it but I think they knew that there was a master plan here. And uh, they wanted to abide by it, but certainly faith in each other. I mean, that was that was just a given from the very beginning. That's all we had was each other. Now, I, I've heard another interview where you you talked and you referenced this in in your new book, "I'm No Hero," about the insanity that can ensue in in terms of captivity. And you give one particular incident. Was was that? fragility of the mind something that you guys had to deal with as a collective on a regular basis i think or it, was i think it, it i think that it really um depended on the individual the case that you're talking about in my book i i talk about a, a guy who was tortured to insanity and um uh we we certainly tried to strengthen each other and in our our, our mental state and if we saw a guy getting really down on himself and crawl over in a corner and curl up and and uh, in, in the fetal position, and you know we'd go over and and talk to him and talk him out of that and and try to bring him back to to a sense of purpose and a sense of uh, positive reality. And so uh, yes, you know, we certainly we certainly tried to help each other out in our mental state. Um, the guys. I don't know. I, I I think the guys who had the problem there weren't very many really that had any mental. There were a couple of guys that uh, attempted suicide. Uh, you know, they, it got that bad for them. But I feel like that they probably had those tendencies even before they got into the prison camp. Right. Because uh, it, most of us, uh, you know, really didn't want to die. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say. Let me. Uh, I'm I'm curious a little more detail on because um, obviously this is an extreme example. These guys that you're talking about that went into these dark moments, what did you find to be most effective in what would you say to these guys? What would you remind them of? What what technique really seemed to work well? To pull them out, right? To bring them back. Yeah. Uh, talking about home and talking about mission, you know, talk, talking about the purpose, uh, you know, why we're here. And, uh, you know, you got a wife and two kids back home and they're counting on you to come home. You know, they're praying every day for you, just like we're praying every day for them. And, uh, and, and you know, it, this is bigger than you. Uh, taking your own life is no solution. Uh, and, uh, you know, even even being depressed is, is it, that that's no help at all. You know, you're you're killing yourself. And not only that, but you're feeding right into into the enemy's plan. You know they they love it. They love it hmm. if you killed yourself, and they, they, you know they love it when you go into depression. I mean, this is part of the war is staying positive, and so you know it was it was basically just a reminder of um, 
you know, home and family and purpose and, and each other. You know, you can't let us down uh, by being this way. You, 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 have to, you have to pull your own weight around here. You know, you're, you're a link in the chain, man. And, uh, you know, we, we, we can't do it without you. So, that, you know, that was sort of the context of, of how we tried to bring guys back. And, and it worked. Hmm. One, of, one of the things that I, I really focus on is this greater belief that there's this ever-present and perpetual negative insurgency coming at us all the time, right? Hmm. You, you, you had it in its most sadistic focus imaginal. Did you guys develop any techniques or tactics that really helped kind of, you know, co- confront that insurgency against you? distract that insurgency or was it more hey by the more pain they put on us the stronger we get how did you meet that insurgency from these very malicious sadistic guards head on and and also on on a little side note was there ever any compassion or empathy from them well i'll answer your second question first there was was only one guard in my entire time there in the six years i was there there was only one guard that ever showed any compassion at all and he was a a brand new new hire that came right out of the out of the jungle and they gave him a rifle and told him to uh you know to guard these prisoners and he would he spoke no english and we spoke no vietnamese and uh, but he would uh, he would joke around with us and and uh, uh he they had issued him a brand new pair of boots and uh, see, so he, he walked in with his uh, his new boots on and a deck of cards, and so he's going to play cards with us. And we decide, what what are we going to bet? Well, we had these rubber tired sandals, uh, you know, these sandals made from um, from from old tires, and the the tubes of the tire were the straps of the sandal. And so we just with charades, you know, uh, pointing and grunting, we decided we're gonna we're gonna. Uh, uh, we're gonna bet our sandals against your new boots, and of course, yeah, this is a little kid, you know, a little kid. We taught him to play the game of war. You know, you know, you lay one card down, and whichever's the bigger, and and all right. that stuff. And he beat us, <laughs> <laughs> and so he picked up our rubber tired sandals and he walked out with them. <laughs> <laughs> and whoever's idea yeah, that was, you're like, good great job. idea, yeah, great idea, yeah, Plum. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, he, he brought them back a few years, you know, a few hours later, and uh, and laughed. And then they sent him off for, for their indoctrination. And he was gone for three or four weeks, and he came back just as mean as all the other guards. Oh, wow. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was disappointing the way they could uh, train these guys to be mean. And, uh, and they did. <clears throat> Let's see. I've forgotten your first question. That, how, how did you right? face the, the – Oh, yeah. Face the, the, that, face the negativity. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of interesting. We did it a lot with humor. Uh, and it, humor mm. became a very important part, uh, uh, yeah, of our uh, existence, of our survival. And we would play little tricks on the uh, on the guards, and it really gave us a lot, a lot of uh, <laughs> uh, of self confidence, you know, just to think that we can get the best of these characters. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, a lot a lot of their negativity, we would we would turn around uh, with some humorous. Uh, anecdote or or some a little trick that we would play, and some of it was just really stupid stuff. Such, but such was, as what, for example? Um, well, let's see. Um, 
you know, we'd, we 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 would uh, steal something from them that they didn't know. Like like if one of them had a a pin or a bracelet or something like that that was laying around, and we could pick it up and keep it for a while. You know, it just it was a big deal if we could keep our hand in the cookie jar. <laughs> little and, wins, uh, and, yeah, just, just small a little victories. Bit. Just, small know. victories. My co-pilot and I were, of course, shot down, uh, and he parachuted out, and uh, I could see his parachute. I knew he was going to be all right. And then he put us uh, in uh, two different Jeeps to haul us into the prison camp, and uh, they tied a rag around my uh, my eyes. And, uh, and, I mean, I think I was delirious because when I heard him, I said to him, I said, this country is 100 years behind in blindfold technology. <laughs> <laughs> Why I would say that, I don't know, but it's just, you know, like you say, it's one of those little quips that, uh, they, they took, I couldn't walk. They were having to carry me everywhere and for my, and my legs were sliding down. I had my boots on one of the only things I had left. They were tied on. And for whatever reason, they thought it was my shoes were the, was the reason I was slipping. So they pulled them off my feet and I was like, well, Hey, I, uh, what, it was dark. God dog. And then all of a sudden this dude comes walking up with these, the the movie Vacation, Clark Griswold, where oh, where, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, where he, yeah, yeah. those white shoes that he gets and he kind of, they brought those out. I was like, oh look at these oh, Griswolds wow. right here. What are you gonna do with those? And, and they were two sizes too small, I think, and they were cramming them on my feet and my toes were all. And as we they were dragging me up that mountain, I was like, oh this is good. I got great tracks now. These suckers, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, where would you get those white? Leather, yeah, I whatever. Bet you look shoes, good. Man, man jams and Griswolds. Man jammies on and those shoes. Man oh, yeah, jams and Griswolds. Oh, God bless. I'll never forget that. <laughs> All right, sir. Thank you so much for sharing the, you know, those details about the friendships and those connectivities and that, and, and, and those moments that got you from one day to the next. What about afterward? Obviously, you know, and you, you, you're, it comes to an end and then the next chapter for you begins and begins for all of you, um, mm -hmm. is how do you, how do you look at that day forward? When you got home, you got off the plane, all of a sudden you're free, you're back in the United States. One, how long did it take for that to settle in? And then two, how did you brew, build the new framework for your life? Good question. Uh, I had planned my life out uh, for the next 20 years. I'd married my high school sweetheart uh, from Kansas, That's and uh, we were married under the Arch of Swords uh, the day after I graduated from the Naval Academy. Awesome. And, and so I planned the next 20 years around her. And, uh, you know, at first I planned sort of a medium career. And after I wasn't home then, I thought, well, I'll plan it a different way. And so I had what, <laughs> what I call saunter, saunter, buster, and gate. These are fighter pilot words. How are you, how you going to go to the, the target? Saunter, buster, gate. And, and so, you know, I had, uh, you know, kind of meander my way through, make commander, retire after 20. That was okay. Or buster was going to be, no, I wanted a squadron. I wanted to get into to test pilot school. I wanted to be a blue angel. Uh, and gate, you know, was going full bore. You know, I'll be at sea all the time. I'll, <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll command an aircraft carrier someday and maybe even a fleet. And so I had these three different ways I was going to propose to my wife when I got home. Well, <laughs> 
when I uh, got, yeah, got off the plane and made the phone call, she was gone. And I called my parents back in Kansas. What's happened to my wife? I'll never forget my mom's word. Bless her soul. She said, son, I'd give 10 years of my life if I didn't have to tell you this, but your wife filed for divorce just three months ago. Oh. She held on for five years, and then she just couldn't take it anymore. And so uh, so I was left um, kind of hanging there without a plan. Um, and uh, I was at Great Lakes Naval Hospital uh, for the first two weeks uh, after I was home. And they, you know, you know, during, during that experience, one of my prayers uh, during that POW experience was that the, the pres- that, that, that the experience uh, would have some value, that, that the pain that I was feeling then would, would, le- would lead to something positive in my life. Amen. And so, but, but I still hadn't figured out how that was ever gonna work. Well, I was the first guy back to the Midwest, and everybody wanted to know the story. So I agreed to uh, be at a press conference in the basement of that hospital. And I was surrounded by 150 photographers and reporters, and I told my story. On the way back up to my my hospital room, uh, as the elevator doors closed, this young reporter came in. I was face-to-face with this guy, nose-to-nose, young guy. But he had lines of anguish in his brow and tears in his eyes. And he said, Mr. Plum, you really got to me in there, man. I've, I've had a miserable year. My family's falling apart. My job is terrible. He said, I even wondered if I wanted to go on living. He said, you've given me hope. Amen. Well, you, you know, and my thought was, wait a minute. I, I, didn't, I didn't mean to give you any hope. I'm just <laughs> telling a story of a Kansas farm kid that got into trouble, you know, uh, what's it? You've given me hope. And, but suddenly I I recognized there was value in the experience itself. Uh, and so I wrote a book, as you say, my autobiography and it's in its 32nd printing. Um, and if you don't have one, you're underprivileged. Congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you for the book, sir, that you sent to Marcus. And I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. And I, and, and I autograph every one of those that's, uh, that's ordered from my website, and so uh, happy to do that. But, you know, it's the same thing you guys are doing, and I really, really appreciate you telling your stories. Because most veterans, most Vietnam veterans, and certainly nearly every World War II veteran I've ever run into is reluctant to tell a story. And I think it's just vital that you guys tell the stories of, of buds and the challenges you faced and and the combat that you faced, uh, uh, Marcus. Uh, and so, so anyway, I, I saw a purpose in life. I saw a reason um, that to hang in there and start telling stories. So I wrote the book and I said I promote that book. I made over four hundred presentations the first year I was home. Wow! And uh, and that, and, that, and that was forty. Three years ago, and I'm booked well into the middle of 2018. <laughs> so, <laughs> Good for you. Wow. God bless I mean, you. If we can't keep that going, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so I'm, you know, uh, I'm still telling the story, and uh, and the key, and you guys have seen this just as I have. The key isn't that it's a war story; it's a story of a of a guy with a problem, and we all have problems. And whether your listeners are civilians or students or retired or or military guys i mean everybody or women children we all face these challenges in life how do you get through these things well you don't quit (laughs) you never never quit (laughs) that's a great point though i mean a lot of the people out there the civilians that are having the problems man a lot of the answers are been solved in, in military and in combat or any military situation the stories that you talk about the guys are sitting on and it's because it's 
you know how it works and and this is why our country's so great with the civilians that respect thing they don't ask or pry because they they weren't there and it's it's not a it's usually yeah. not a good thing it's a bad thing and i, I always yeah. i heard from a, this kid how do you say he's like you know my my grandfather was world war ii he never talked about it and i was like yeah he did he just didn't talk about it to you you know we talk yeah. about it with yeah. each other oh, yeah. and, our, and, our, and each other and it stays yeah. inside Absolutely. but every now you know when when the guys when we get out and we come back and we become civilians, I think some some the civilians themselves they it's not that they want to know the story just because they think it's cool, man. They want to know so they can feel that emotion with you and, and they can just kind of somehow relate to that different world that you exist in. And now you're trying to come back and exist in in the one we came from. But you're right. I think that when when what you've done, especially after what you've been through, man, it eases that tension, right? That reluctancy that to stand away from those guys who went through the bad stuff. And most of the time, guys, you know, like, hey, man, I'll tell you what yeah. you want to oh, know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll help you yeah. out. This is how I did this. It's no, no brainer. And you're right. It's not, it's a, it's a human. The human element is what connects everybody. Doesn't have to be what job Amen. description or anything like that, man. Not bad. We we in a we in a bad spot. You know what I'm talking about? We in a bad spot right here. <laughs> and then, you know, you get back. There's other people who are going to walk that same line that we did. And, I mean, it kind of incumbent on us to pass that knowledge down to help them out, I think. I think God taps us to do it. You know, I, 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 I totally agree. And, uh, and, and you know, I'm, my mother was so prophetic. Uh, she wrote a letter to my wife, my ex-wife, uh, the day I was shot down. And, uh, and the letter said, um, it's so terrible that Charlie is not going to reach his full potential because now he's been shot down and, and may not survive. And, but nobody knows God's plan. You know, maybe there's a bigger plan than he will actually have more opportunity to touch lives of people because of the experience. And and, and she Mm. said that the day I was shot down, (laughs) so not knowing if I was alive or dead. Sir, I, I got to tell you, the wizard just brought this up the other day. We were having this very same conversation about trying to gauge the weight of the impact we had while we were in service versus the impact we have now. And we just in our we we did a, conduct an interview last um, evening, and at the end we usually read a reader story. And this reader story was about a man who was on the brink of suicide who found our show and now it's piecing his recovery back week to week. And so mm-hmm. it's undoubted. Mm. It's there's no doubt in my mind that the impact that you are having specifically and the story that you share mm. of your perseverance, your faith, the brotherhood that you were a part of the ability to move forward and beyond that in a healthy manner, you are saving lives and impacting lives far greater than any plane you ever flew, sir. So I appreciate <laughs> okay. it. Well, I, I, I appreciate that. Uh, and I, and I hope, I hope you're right. I, I believe you're right. You know, I mean, that's why I keep on doing, I'm 75 years old and, uh, I'm going to keep on doing this as long as uh, the Lord uh, gives me air to breathe and, uh, and, and, and a good wife to, to cook. <laughs> so. well, there's no doubt about that in my mind either. As soon yeah. as you talked about the 43 years and, I, I just started thinking, my God, that's got to be an enormous number of people that he's, he's touched. Impacted. So yeah. I'm with you on that, buddy. Sir, well, thanks. I've, spoke, I've spoken about 5,000 times, a little over 5,000 times uh, all over the world. And, uh, and I've really, really been amazed, you know, at th- th- that the story has had legs that it's had. Because I, you know, I remember just a couple of years after Vietnam, I thought, man, this is ancient history. 
And the majority of my audiences today weren't even alive uh, during my story. Uh, you guys weren't. And, and so, um, it, but, but there's, a, there's a thread. There's a constant thread there. And it's a thread of humanity. Amen. It's a thread of resilience. You know, it's a, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a thread of meeting challenges and finding uh, solutions. So the end of the story uh, is that I've remarried, have four wonderful children, uh, have, uh, I have two airplanes, uh, and a sailboat. And in fact, I j- just came back from uh, British Virgin Islands where uh, my son commands one 48-foot boat and I command another 48-foot boat and we chase ourselves around Tortola. Uh, you know, life is good. Can you, bef- before we sign off, can you please share with our guests where they can find you, how they can get in touch with you, where they can find your books. Can you can you share that? Sure, sure. Appreciate that. Uh, CharliePlum.com. C-H-A-R-L-I-E-P-L-U-M-B.com. CharliePlum.com is my website. And I'm on Facebook and Twitter and all these things as well. Um, I answer every email that's sent to me. So Charlie at CharliePlum.com is, uh, is the way to get a hold of me. And I, I'm happy to share um, and, uh, you know, autograph a, a book for you, for you. We've got videotapes and all that stuff as well. I'm on the speaking circuit as well. And so I talk to corporations and trade associations and churches and schools and, and, uh, you know, like you guys do. And, uh, and so I, uh, I, I, I crisscross the country, um, every week. Um, a lot, a lot of airplane miles. In fact, <laughs> for my, for my birthday party, I'm, uh, Cash in just a few of my airplane miles and taking uh, 25 of my relatives to Hawaii. <laughs> oh, bless your heart. Bless my your son heart. Law, my son-in-law is a Marine Corps captain stationed at Kaneohe, Kaneohe Bay in oh, yeah. Hawaii. So, so they've invited us over there for, uh, for my 75th, uh, 75th birthday. Have you well, been out there to Kaneohe? You been out there? Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, man, I, I spent a tour out there, too. That's yeah, a pretty cool place. Man. That's awesome. Yeah. Of course— my son, my my son-in-law, you know, I mean, stationed in Hawaii, you think really great. He's been deployed to South Korea. Hawaii must be cool, right? Yeah. I don't know. My stuff was there. I guess I've had a good time. Yeah, yeah. my dog is there. Yeah. <laughs> he lived it up. Hopefully, he learned how to surf. Right. <laughs> totally. Totally. Well, sir, thank you so much for coming on and and for sharing with us and our listeners. I, I there's no Absolutely. doubt in my mind that they can take away just uh, countless points and and just in and of itself just be enlightened by you and your experience. So we really appreciate it. I just love the fact that you are spiritual, you are, and you are doing God's work. So thank you, sir. Well, right back at you. You know, I really feel a brotherhood with you guys. I've known several SEALs and just loved every every one of them. You guys, you guys are really, really the uh, uh, backbone of America. Appreciate you. And if if you either one of you run for president, I'll be your campaign manager. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I, that's your brother's gonna definitely run, yeah, right. dude. That's yeah, that's Morgan. Yeah. It'll be Morgan, not Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> We're twins, so yeah. it's it's yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, sir. God bless you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. And and when you hear the story, what I couldn't just, I couldn't stop thinking the whole time, right, is that number, the number. And... (laughs) The number, 
You're screaming that downstairs. I know, man. That's 2,103 days, wizard. You know, in the interview, it was almost, he was so, you know, with his personality and the way he talked about things and just his general tone and spirit, Demeanor. it was kind of easy to Let it- drift away from that. But even with, you know, seer training, which I guess is as close as you can get to a taste of that, right. you, I, I, I can't wrap your mind, I can't wrap my mind around that. Oh. You ready? Yeah. Are you ready? Are you ready for my seer training story? All right, so you're training, Listen, right? Yep. This was back in a day where we're all going, and we, like, Team 1, Team 3, Team 5, were doing takedowns on the SEER school. So I had gotten the tip that, you know, my class was good. A couple SEAL Team 1 platoons were going to do the takedown, and I was good, right? Mm-hmm. So I go into the space, and I'm, we're having fun, and, I, I, you know, there's a hilarious story about gut and camouflage in his testicles, which was a whole other thing, and I'll tell that later. But we get into this <laughs> thing... And you go into the camps, right? And we're having fun. Soft sell, hard sell. You, they, you have to pull off to the side because, hey, you're not playing the game. Or, you're like, whatever, dude. I'm boom. They put you in the little thing, the box. And all of a sudden, I start going, all right, any minute, we're going to get out. Any minute, we're going to yeah, get out. Yeah. Any minute, they're going to hit it. We're going to get out. Any minute, we're going to hit out. It was not like I was in there for days. I was not in there for, uh, <laughs> you know, any long amount of hours. But, dude, I mind-blanked myself so bad. But by the time where we had the one, like, 18-year-old seaman who who uh, who literally, like, who fell off the ship and he becomes the propaganda guy in Sierra. Did you have that, dude? Well, I clipped out of Sierra. <laughs> I'm the reason all the new guys have to go through it. Sorry, bros. I'm so sorry. I mean, I didn't mean to do that, but the irony of that. Yeah, because I didn't go. <laughs> because I didn't go. Cannot through be it. understated. Oh, my JP8 debrief started when I was in the hospital, and then after that, it was Sear. I mean, I, me and, and the Sear guys are close. Tight. Yeah, man. I spent a lot of time with them jokers afterwards. <laughs> there is a tremendous amount of irony I, in that. There is. Yeah. So. The the point is, is I'm reflecting on 2,103 days and I'm moaning about eight hours in, in Sears school in Southern California. I'm, I, it's unfathomable to me. No, no, here, here, here's the deal with that, man. And this is kind of the one thing where I got, I have that perspective. Yeah. I want to know what you think of that. Yeah. So check this out. Um, you guys are like, man, I couldn't. And I, I thought this, I thought the same way, right? And even when you're going through Sears school, the problem is, is that in in a team guy's mind, you know that that the instructors are our instructors, right? Yeah. That it's going to yeah. end, right? So you get put in a box like this bullshit, man. I got stuff to do, man. I got you know, talk about it. you know, <laughs> just I annoying. gotta go, I gotta it's, go. It's really and fucking annoying. Exactly, but think about it like if it was like buds, like you had no idea, right? Mm-hmm. My my point is, is man, there's something that kicks in that uh, it, it, I don't think it's kind of impossible for it to happen. In, in in the school environment. Right. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Now, it may happen. No, to those, I don't, nor- but I understand no, no, what you're saying. It may happen to the kids that they sent through Sears school that aren't as trained as we are, but man, because of our what we've already been through in that mentality, you know how when we go to Sears school, we take it over and then they're like, oh. hey, we got to do this kind of deal. And, yeah. And uh, even Morgan, he's like, when that dude slapped me for the first time, I was like, "Hey, don't, don't, don't do that again." <laughs> that first yeah. open palm, that first that, open palm. Oh slap. my god, Morgan's, I wanted yeah, to punch Morgan's that playing guy. The game, dude, and that, that dude slapped me. He's like, "Don't, don't do that again, dude." <laughs> I mean, just think of some of the guys we got in our team, man. Yeah. I mean, 
Those instructors have to be standing there going, this could probably go really bad. I mean, I'm Imagine looking at Imagine hitting Tage in the side Tage of his head. Tage or somebody like that, dude. <laughs> All right, so when, when he's telling this story, and I'm trying to keep it in that framework, but you're exactly right. For me, it was his positivity, right? How he delivered the message of probably one of the most difficult situations any human being can be in, right? Where, where they're, where your captors or the people are against you. And, and this could be in your life. If you're growing up in a shattered home where you're being devalued on a regular basis, right? Where the value, your, your, uh, integrity, your, what's the word I'm looking for? Your dignity is perpetually Mm. being stripped away. And that's their job. That's their mission at an extreme level you know, to try and summon it up every single day to make it through the day to get to well, the that's, next Well, that's day. kind of what gets burned away. I mean, all that white noise, that dignity, that pride that usually messes with us when all this stuff happens, man, then it's just survival, instinctual. And then once that village, when I, man, once I got in there and they put their hands around me and I figured out what was going on, it was just love, bro. I mean, love. I, I loved how you described that, how mm. Captain Plum described It is that, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you hear these guys that, 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 that were in the... And first of all, man, 2,000 days comes out of there and is just walking tall. I mean, hell, I was out there for five days. How am I not going to walk tall? Right? I mean, he right? was talking about what his purpose is. His purpose is for, to show me what in the hell a warrior looks like. Exactly. And then my purpose was to... I, and you, know, you don't think about this when you're in. You're like, I could you know, just take it, man. You know, this is stupid. Why am I doing this? Kind of. And then you just keep pushing and you don't think about like, well, you know, one day this kid's going to look up and... <laughs> Marcus went through Afghanistan, then he got out of the hospital and went back to Iraq. You know, when I was doing that, that's all I thought about. Right. I had to have you all around me. Yeah. I didn't know any mm-hmm. man to separate me would have been bad. Horrible. And you think that's a huge component. Like he talked about it. The guys, you I know, wonder if he missed Vietnam. those guys when they, you know, talking about when they pulled him out of there. Oh, he had. Oh, my God. About? I mean, like, to we missed that other. long in that prison. You have to, I would assume he had to establish a new normal. Right, those guys would have just been a, a an inseparable part of his new reality, and walking away from that, I wanted to ask him. We didn't have time. I was kind of curious. Was he afraid to go home? Because you hear about guys that get out of prison and they, you know, they have a problem readjusting and whatnot. They've oh, become used to that. Yeah, man. I, Not saying he wanted to stay and <laughs> stay there. Right. Obviously, the institutionalization. Not. But I wondered what you know if he was a little concerned with. And you sort of asked him the readjustment, but. Well, look at the success ratio of yeah, the, five, off the, the 591 guys. That was super interesting. I, 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 here's if that doesn't tell you the power of developing a never-quit mindset, I'm assuming that that's why they were so successful. And, and those numbers, all that stuff comes from a book called Lessons of the Hanoi Hilton. So probably what we ought to do is go find the author of that book and see if we can bring him on to help explain some of that other stuff and, and, and get into it. But let, let's come back to what our listeners need to take away from this. In my mind, what you have to understand is that the relationships you create and the, and the time, the small little things that you make and invest in the people around you when you're in prison, whether it's the prison of your own mind or you're in the prison of failure, whether you're in the prison of defeat, whether you're in the prison of judgment or hatred or anger, go to the places around you where you know that love is true. 
And if that love is true, it lifts you up every day. And you have to lean on the people that you love, that you know they love you. That's what I took. What did you take? I want to expand on exactly what you said. because That's one of the things that I thought was really important because when we talked with, with James Lawrence, and he talked about having the bucket of whys. Yeah. Bucket of reasons. I mean, this is basically what you're saying. And I heard that immediately pinged in my brain when the captain was talking about uh, what were you reminding those guys of when you were trying to bring them back from that dark, that dark spot? Right. You know, bring them back. It was basically, he was telling them, these are your whys. You know, this is have that bucket of whys. Have that bucket of reasons, those accountability points in your life to draw on when you need it. Yes. Be aware of them. Take the time to think about those things that they're there when you need something to lean on. I love it. Marcus, that was awesome, by the way. Yeah, I mean, if you, that was awesome. you pack those as deep, even to the stupid ones, right? It's just that one even look, one that doesn't mean anything to anybody else. It meant something to me, man. That'll keep me going. You know, that kind of deal. Right. Yeah. Well, listen, if you're tuning into this show, <laughs> I don't even know how to segue oh into God. that. This has been what this is. I this has been one of the most fun, but one of the heaviest shows for sure. Because when you talk about freedom, you have to conceptualize or take a crack at what it means to lose your freedom. And I think a lot of our listeners come here because they feel like their freedom has been taken away in some capacity, whether it's by their own choice or by their choice of their environment or by the people around them. So if you're listening to this show and you're not feeling free in your life, at least take this away from what Captain Plum was saying. You you can endure in the hardest things imaginable if you just have faith in something bigger, in particular the team around you, in particular, you know, wearing, being a part of something that's bigger than yourself. So the first thing you need to do to, 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 be released from your own incarceration is to become a part of something bigger than yourself. And that's what I hope you're hearing. And, and if this is your first time, welcome again. Thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. We love you. If, if you're coming back, you're a regular listen, God bless you. We, we are so thankful for you and, and, and your, what you're doing for us. If, if you, if you heard something in this show and you felt like you've been in captivity in some capacity, please write in and share with us how you got out, share your never quit story about how you were released from the prison that you've been in, in your life. Please write into our website. It's incredible. We want to, if the story is amazing, we will read it on air. If it's incredible, Marcus, we'll bring you on. We're going to bring you on. So, I just want to end one more time, as I always do. I want to give thanks to God and Christ for my life, for taking me out of captivity. I want to give thanks to my children, to my family. You know, more importantly, I want to thank the two of you. I mean, for what you do every day with me when we put this on and how I feel and the freedom that I feel of what we're able to serve our listeners and thank our listeners. But most importantly, this one, I, I want to thank Captain Plum. Because mm -hmm. that man and what he's done and the sacrifices he's made and what he does for this country and for the world right now is profound. And so thank you, sir, for, for being on our show. Oh, yeah. I'm wore out, man. 
I'm all sweaty over here. What's up? <laughs> I, I, man, I'm just gonna, I, Captain Plum. I tell you what, man, you, you keep doing what you're doing, and thank you for walking tall and coming back. And and like I said, you, sometimes our boys get left over there, get dropped off in hell, and get drugged down there a little while longer than they should. And when they come back, man, and, and they just stand tall and 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 live life no matter what. That that's that in itself is, uh, man, that's godly almost, right? It is. So, thank you for that. Thank you for the lessons. I learned a lot from you today. Absolutely. Right. Take care of yourself and God bless. I'm out. I'm out. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.